Well, good morning. I hope everybody is doing well. Everybody doing pretty well? Good. Matthew 21. Turn to Matthew 21. Y'all ever had relationships that feel kind of tense? Relationships like where there's some conflict and that pressure kind of builds up within the, within the relationship and within the conflict? Because that's really where we're at. And Jesus, the relationship between Jesus, the religious leaders. And if you've been with us through Matthew, you know that that conflict has been there. There's always been that tension between Jesus and the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And, but as we get into Matthew, that conflict builds, that pressure builds. And we're really reaching the climax of the ministry of Christ. As he comes to Jerusalem, it's the Passion Week, and he is preparing for his death on the cross and his resurrection. It shouldn't be a surprise that we've come to this place because Jesus has told his disciples many times that he is going to Jerusalem where he must die for the sins of the people and that he would be raised again. And as we look at the Passion Week, Wednesday night, we studied uh, the first part of chapter 21, the triumphal entry that takes place on Monday of the week that Jesus would be crucified. So Jesus was crucified on Friday, but we looked at Wednesday night takes place on Monday. And you saw as Jesus entered, um, look back at verses 8 and 9, how the people reacted Most of the crowd, as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the donkey, most of the crowd spread their coats in the road before him, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And we're going to talk more about what those words mean because they come up again in the passage we're going to look at this morning, and they are absolutely critical. So we're going to talk more about those, what those words mean this morning, but with the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, this pressure between the, the, the tension between Jesus and the leaders, that pressure continues to grow. It continues to build because now Jesus is entering Jerusalem, like the uh, center of their nation, their people, their religion. And the people are reacting in, the way, in a way that makes the religious leaders very very nervous when we're going to talk again about what those words mean hosanna to the son of david but as um, alejandro pointed out last week these words point towards the messiah these words that they are calling out point to jesus being the messiah now the people didn't as alejandro taught us very the people didn't realize all the implications of that um and they didn't respond exactly as we would hope. They thought that, you see verses 10 and 11, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now that is true, but Jesus is so much more, right? Jesus is so much more. But now that Jesus is in Jerusalem, he's going to go to the temple. He's going to go to the very heart 
of the Jewish, Jewish nation and their religion. The temple, to really understand our passage today, which is a familiar passage, Jesus is going to go in and cleanse the temple. We've probably, many of us have heard this story before, but to really understand the significance of it, you've got to put yourself into first century Jerusalem and think about what the temple meant to the nation of Israel and what it meant to the people and how significant of a role it played in their nation and in their religion. It represented the presence of God among the people. For the nation of Israel, it separated them from the other nations. It, it was the, Having the temple there in Jerusalem was the opportunity for the nation of Israel to say, look at these other nations, we are different. We have been called by God. We have been chosen by God. We are his people. And the temple represented the presence of God in the nation of Israel. It, it represented that Israel had a unique calling that was different from any other nation. They were the chosen, elected, called people of God. And the, the temple represented God's physical presence among them. The reality that God is not like some deity who is far away and unrelated to his people. The temple, what it was intended to teach was that our God, when he chooses people, he has fellowship with those people. There's a deep relationship. There's worship that takes place between his people, and there's deep fellowship, deep relationship. That is why they had the temple. It was for that deep fellowship and commitment to God. But the temple was always meant simply to teach that, to point to that reality, to point to the reality that um, as God's people, we are to have that fellowship with him, and we are to have that worship. It teaches us that God dwells with us. But the temple was never intended to be a fulfillment of that reality. The temple was to teach that. It was to be a foreshadowing of that. But it always pointed to the Messiah. It always pointed to Jesus Christ. That it's in Jesus Christ that we have the fulfillment of that relationship with God. That access to God. The, the ability to worship God and come before him. The temple was always pointing to the reality that Jesus would fulfill. Apart from Jesus Christ, the temple can do nothing in terms of you having access and fellowship to God, fellowship with God. And so, Jesus is the fulfillment of what the temple pointed to. Jesus is greater than the temple. That's what makes this cleansing of the temple such a big deal. That's what makes the interaction that we have today within the temple between Jesus and the religious leaders such a big deal. Because if they had recognized what the purpose of the temple truly was and who Jesus Christ truly is, then Christ is greater than the temple. 
then Christ is the one you turn to. Christ is the one you go to. And in fact, all of the ministry of Jesus points us to him being greater than the, te- the temple and the fulfillment of it. What we're going to look at today is really the second time in the earthly ministry of Jesus where he cleanses the temple. Go ahead and look real quick at John chapter 2. Because John chapter 2 is the first time that this happens. So this happens in John chapter 2 at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. And then it's three years later that we're looking in Matthew 21, the second time he cleanses the temple. But we learn a lot from John chapter 2 that applies to what we see this morning. I'm going to read verses 13 to 21. And notice both of these happened during the Passover because as Alejandro pointed out Wednesday night, I'm going to say that a lot of times. Like you really need to go back and listen to Wednesday night because they connect so much with what we're talking about this morning. But the Passover was the time where the, the nation of Israel gathered around Jerusalem to go to the temple and um, worship God. So both of these take place at the Passover time where the city would have just been packed with people. There would have been a lot of activity. And in John chapter 2 verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was near and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers, uh, the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews, the Jews then said, it took 46 years to build the temple and you will raise it up in three days. But Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. So again, the first time that Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses it, a lot of parallels with what we're going to see this morning in Matthew 21. But the first time that Jesus does this, recognize that what he is telling them is that something greater than the temple is here. Himself. What the temple always foreshadowed and pointed to, the presence of God, worshiping God, the fellowship with God, the forgiveness of sins, the redemption, atonement, all that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the only point to God giving the Old Testament nation of Israel, this whole system of worship related to the temple, was pointing towards Jesus Christ. And so even in John chapter 2, when Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple and the authorities confront him, Jesus' point to them is, hey, somebody greater than the temple is here. I'm the true temple. Destroy this body and in th- or destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Clearly he's pointing towards his resurrection. So fast forward three years from John chapter 2, and we're in Matthew chapter 21. Again, the Passion Week, the week where Christ would be crucified. In the verses we're looking at today, John, or verses 12 to 17, they take place on Tuesday of the week that Jesus would die. And there's two different scenes we're going to see here in verses 12 to 17. The first scene is the righteous acts 
of Jesus in the temple. The righteous acts of Jesus in the temple. The second scene that we're going to see is the leaders. I should give you, I guess, the paraphrase before I give you the spiel. Confrontation with the leaders. That's part two. Confrontation with the leaders. Where the leaders see what Jesus is doing in the temple and they confront him over this. But what's the theme of Matthew? You should know this by now. Jesus is king, right? That's everything Matthew does is driving towards um, that truth, teaching us that truth, that Jesus is king, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is the Messiah. It's no different this morning. This whole passage is teaching us that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is king. This morning he teaches us that by showing that Jesus is Lord and King over the temple. So let's look at verses 12 to 14, our first part, righteous acts in the temple. And there's really two different things he does here. The first is driving out the traitors. The second is healing. Let's look at verses 12 to 14. And Jesus entered the temple And drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. And overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The first thing we see here is Jesus driving out the traitors. Now, there was some legitimacy, legitimacy to what they're doing here because animal sacrifices needed to be given in the temple, right? So let's look at the money changers and the people selling animals. Did, it, did the Old Testament require animal sacrifices? Yes. And remember, this is the Passover week, so people are traveling from all over. Like Jesus himself came from Galilee, right? So if you've ever traveled with a dog in a car, you know it's a pain, right? Now now that's today, and you've got Bucky's to stop at and all that. Imagine you're living 2,000 years ago, and you've got to travel a long way to go to the temple to offer sacrifices at the Passover. It's not real practical to travel the whole way with your animal sacrifice, right? So you would travel when you get to Jerusalem, There, you would purchase the animal that you would need to be sacrificing. The other group that we see here that Jesus drives out is those who were, um, he calls them money changers, right? Money changers. So, it's the same thing. You go show up, I don't really, I don't travel much, never traveled internationally, but I can imagine there's places you show up and it's like, hey, I got my dollar can I buy something? They're like, uh, we don't take dollars. Like, we take whatever it is, right? I don't know. So you got to do an exchange, right? When you go travel international, it's like, hey, I'm going to this country. They want this kind of money. Can you change out my dollars for whatever? So when you go to the temple, the Roman government made it where the temple tax and what you gave in the temple had to be the Tyrian coin. So that's what it was. So if you traveled from another country, another region that used another form of money, when you got to Jerusalem for Passover and you wanted to pay the temple tax and you wanted to give to the temple, you're going to have to switch out your money. So you also had those selling doves here. Go back and remember, like, if you couldn't, if you were poor 
and you couldn't afford some of the more expensive animals to sacrifice in the temple, God still wants poor people to be able to worship, right? And so the doves were there for the, those who were um, poor, who could buy the doves. So all of these had legitimate purposes, right? There was a legitimate role for all these people. But the problem with any type of even proper religious activity is it can be corrupted, right? Like, we see this. We see it in churches around us all the time where this, our church is legitimate? Duh, right? We would say absolutely. But do we see churches that become more of a commercial operation about profit and authority and money than actually worshiping God and serving God and serving the body of Christ? Absolutely. I don't know how true it is. I don't really care to waste time researching it, but I saw some pastor this week, like it came out, his annual income is $54 million. That's a lot of money. $54 million? Like, I don't know what the proper salary is for a pastor, but $54 million seems like a lot, right? Like, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, uh, it, there's a challenge there where the church, people see it as an opportunity to make money. Let's sell books. Let's put on conferences, charge $1,000 per person. They'll show up. Let's, let's, and all these, again, have their legitimate place. Like, is it good that Christian authors write books? Absolutely. But does it have the potential to be turned into a corrupted business practice and a power grab? Absolutely, right? And so that is part, I, there, there's also a lot of people who would argue, too, that where these individuals were carrying on this commercial practice, that this really wasn't the place for it. Like the temple, when people are in the temple, they should be there to focus on God and worship God. This, this legitimate need for purchasing animal sacrifices and getting your money changed over, do that somewhere else. Do that outside of the temple. But let the temple be for what it's actually intended for, fellowshipping, worshiping God. And so those are really the two reasons that Jesus has a problem with what these people are doing. One, it has turned into a corrupted business practice where their purpose, as legitimate as the need was, their purpose, they weren't there to truly help the worshipers. They, they had no care for the things of God they had no care for the, the people coming to worship God. They were there for make, making money. This was a business opportunity for them. And God never wants us to intermingle our desire for material things and wealth and power with worshiping him and our purpose as a church and his people. And second, the place where they were intending to do this. They had turned the temple into their commercial business. 
So Jesus drives them out. Now, isn't it, if you're being honest and you think back to John chapter 2, seeing Jesus with the whip, and then you look at this passage, Jesus flipping over tables, is it hard to picture that? It doesn't really fit with how you typically think of Jesus, right? Because we all get mad, and we act out in anger sometimes. But is there such thing as a righteous anger? Absolutely. And I think that's a big difference. Think of the times that you get mad and I get mad too. I mean, we all do it. And we start acting out, throwing stuff, slamming stuff, flipping stuff. I haven't flipped anything in a while, but sounds satisfying. Um, Think about that. Usually those outbursts of anger... I would say 99% of the time, for me at least, are for me being inconvenienced. Like, not because I see God being dishonored, not because I see um, the church being corrupted, but because things aren't going my way. That is sinful anger. Righteous anger What we see from Jesus here is Jesus, like he says, recognizing that the worship of God is being corrupted. The temple is being corrupted. The pilgrims coming to worship God are being corrupted. So the anger here for Christ is over the things of God, not his own offense. We see Jesus get angry here. We don't see Jesus getting angry on the cross. Think about when they are actually doing something against Christ crucifying him, scourging him, humiliating him. In those circumstances, he prays for the people, right? Like, Lord, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Like, here we see what we, would, what, what we call a righteous anger. Definitely not a sinful anger. Now, you got to be careful when you talk about your own righteous anger, right? Like, you're not Jesus, And you don't have the discernment and the wisdom of Jesus. So I think for us, when it comes to righteous anger, should there be a place and a time in your heart and your life for righteous anger? Absolutely, right? When you see the things of God being dishonored, when you see the church being attacked, that should make you angry. I just urge you to use extreme caution, seek counsel, and be very wise before you start flipping over tables and grabbing the whip, right? No, you know, you say, okay, I don't know. I didn't think I was going to get into whole examples here. That's a good question, though. Like you see somebody picking on somebody else and you step in and do something about it. I think that's great. I don't know exactly how I fit, fit it in here, but yeah, I think that. I'm, here's the point I would say, though. You aren't Jesus, right? Like, you don't have the wisdom and discernment of Jesus. So before you start flipping over tables and, like, calling people out and, like, before you pull the whip out at church, you better be using some very strong biblical discernment with some very strong counsel because what we can be easily doing is getting on our own soapboxes, right? 
like, oh, this issue is very personal to me, and I'm going to get fired up about it, and I'm going to take action. And you might be tricking yourself into thinking it's righteous anger, and maybe it partly is, right? Like, maybe there's part, maybe this is wrong, but maybe you're not handling it right. Do you see what I'm saying? I don't, I, am I communicating that well? Like, be careful before you say, hey, this is righteous anger, so I have the right to do what I want in this circumstance. I'd be very careful. You're not Jesus, right? But there is a time and a place. There's something even bigger going on here, though. There's something even bigger. Even more, the bigger picture here is this is about who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. Um, Again, go back and listen to this past Wednesday night because Alejandro did a great job of showing that the introduction of Jesus into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, how he came in, the way the people reacted, it was very much showing in the arrival of Jesus what Matthew was doing, the reason Matthew outlined it the way he did. Matthew was showing that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And Matthew is again in verses 12 to 17 here, the passage we're looking at this, this morning. The way that Matthew does this and the reason that Matthew does this is to show us again that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. The one that the temple pointed towards is here. The one who is greater than the temple is here. In verse 13, Jesus quotes two different Bible verses. He quotes Isaiah 56, 7, and he quotes Jeremiah 7, 11. But even then, you go, you go back in the Old Testament beyond just the two verses quoted here. The New Testament, or I'm sorry, the Old Testament repeatedly talks about the Messiah coming and purifying the worship of his people, building his temple, the true temple. This lesson is about showing who Jesus Christ is, and it's Jesus claiming authority. Authority over the temple and authority over worship. Because unless Jesus is the Messiah, unless Jesus is God in the flesh, then this is really a very crazy thing for him to be doing. And the things that he says here, so here's what's interesting, right? Is like, the way Jesus phrases the verses that he quotes, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Jesus is calling this his house. And we're going to see this again in, when we look at his confrontation in a moment between the leaders and Jesus. He's going to quote Psalm 8, but he quotes it in a way, Psalm 8 is about the praise and worship of God, and Jesus quotes it about himself. The way Jesus uses the Old Testament here, and the way he goes about purifying the temple, Jesus can only do these things if he is the Son of God. Jesus is either blaspheming in these verses, or Jesus is God himself in the flesh. So the first righteous deed he does at the temple is he drives out those who have corrupted it with their commercial practices. The second thing he does in the temple is he heals. 
verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. You know, nothing new here. It's uh, Jesus, again, demonstrating his lordship, his deity, his power, demonstrating that he is sovereign God over all things. Interestingly, though, the people that he's interacting with here and the people that he's healing are people who would have had limited opportunity to worship in the temple. Those who were lame, those who had physical deformities, those who were sick, were very much kept from a lot of aspects of temple worship. Their access to the temple would have been highly limited. So it's a beautiful picture of salvation here because Jesus is taking those who, because of their defect, are limited in their access to God, and he's purifying them so that they can have full access to God. It's salvation, right? I mean, it's a picture of what happens in our lives where our sin, our defects, keep us from fellowship with God, yet Christ is the answer to those sins and those defects to give us now full access to God. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does. But, as you can imagine, Jesus coming into the temple and doing this, Jesus healing the people, and as we'll see, the reaction of the people again, that is just adding to the pressure of the tension between him and the religious leaders. Think about how the chief priest describes the religious leaders feel about Monday, Jesus walking in, people are calling out Hosanna, son of David. Tuesday, he's coming into your house. Not, well, that, that's the problem, right? They looked at it as their house. He's coming into their space, what they feel like is their space, their jurisdiction, where they rule. And he's coming in and driving people out, overturning things, healing people. And as we'll see, People crying out to him again, Hosanna, son of David. All this just adds to the pressure, as you can imagine. And we get to the confrontation with the leaders, verses 15 to 17. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them and went out of the city of Bethany and spent the night there. Again, the chief priests and the scribes, they see what's going on here. Their place of authority, their jurisdiction is being heavily undermined by Jesus and uh, unless Jesus is the Son of God, that he is way out of line, right? So they have a problem with what Jesus is doing here, but they have a huge problem, too, with what the people are saying. Look at verse 16. So the people are saying, Hosanna, Son of David. And in verse 16, they say, Do you hear what these children are saying? See, because Jesus, unless he is the Son of God, unless he is the Messiah, he really needs to rebuke these people. Because by calling out Hosanna, Hosanna, it's like, a, it's just the Hebrew word. If you knew how to read Hebrew and we pulled it up here on the screen, 
you would just read it, Hosanna, okay? It's just we took a Hebrew word, changed it over into English letters that we're familiar with. But Hosanna means, oh, save us. Oh, rescue us. It's like the emphatic version. You see it sometimes used in the Old Testament to talk about just military type stuff. Like uh, when they called out to King David, like, David, deliver us from these enemies, right? And then you see it, I think, Gideon, perhaps. Um, Gideon as well from the Midianites talking about, hey, give us this military victory, this deliverance. So it's this word of deliverance, um, but when it's pointed towards God, Hosanna, it's the emphatic there, and he brought up a great verse in Psalms for us where it's calling out to God for salvation, for redemption, for rescue. And unless you're talking in a military sense, and specifically here with this Hosanna word, when you're pointing at God, you're calling out to God for salvation of your soul. And so by calling out to Jesus, Hosanna, they are saying something to him that really should only be said to God. In addition, the son of David peace. It was always understood that the Messiah was going to come through King David's lineage. That's why at the beginning of Matthew, if you remember what Matthew does, he traces the birth of Jesus through King David's lineage, because that's what the Old Testament said. Part of the Davidic covenant, God told David, hey, through you, I'm going to establish an everlasting kingdom. Not just an earthly kingdom, because earthly kingdoms rise and fall, but an eternal kingdom will be established by your son, by your descendant. So for the people to cry out, Hosanna, son of David, They're calling out to Jesus for deliverance as their Messiah. Now, I don't, like Alejandro showed us the other night, they still haven't really fully grasped the entirety of what that means. But still, for Jesus to not rebuke them, unless he is the Son of God, it would be blasphemy. That's why the religious leaders, hearing and seeing all this, approach Jesus and they, they say, do you hear what these children are saying? The implication of their question is, you should really go put a stop to this. This is not a good thing. But how does Jesus respond? I love it. Because Jesus essentially says, they're right. That's exactly what he says. They are right. And while the religious leaders and the high and mighty and powerful who should be able to see who Jesus is, while they don't get it, the humble, the children, those who who are lowly, are the ones who are recognizing who Jesus is and praising him for it. His response is a quotation of Psalm 8 here. Jesus says, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you've prepared praise for yourself? The humble are recognizing who Jesus is when the powerful are missing it. But again, the way Jesus quotes Psalm 8 here is only okay if Jesus is in fact the Son of God. Because Psalm 8 is about 
praising God and that the worship of God and the praise of God is going to come from the mouth of the children, the mouth of those who are lowly. And Jesus here applies that verse to himself. Do you see the significance of that? And how unless Jesus is God, this is a very wrong thing for him to do. But the reality is, Jesus is God. And that's why it is perfectly appropriate and right for him to accept this worship. For him to allow the people to crawl out to him, Hosanna, son of David. And for him to talk about how the praise of Yahweh, the praise of the one true God, rightly applies to him. Do you see how crazy it is when people say that the Bible never says Jesus is God? It says it over and over and over again. Over and over and over again, the things of God apply to Jesus Christ. While there, there's a lot of important things that we can learn from this passage, you know, a lot of them are very practical in the sense of, um, I love looking, look at the ministry of Jesus and even here in this passage, how, how often is his response to people, scripture? Jesus fully relied on the Bible when he was responding to people. And you may say, like, well, he didn't have the Bible back then. Okay, so he didn't have this specific, like, nicely bound book that I have here. But everything up to Matthew, what we would call the Old Testament, Jesus had all that. All this, exactly what Jesus had. And he relied on it extensively throughout his ministry. In all his circumstances, in all his conflicts, when he ministered to people, when he responded to temptation, think back to Matthew 4, when he responds to um, the religious leaders confronting him here, Jesus fully relied on the word of God. It's an example for us, right? It's an example for us. You learn here his love for the poor and needy. It was the poor and needy that he ministered to, that he... Uh, he gave access to the temple to that he uh, really worshipped on, worshipped with. We learn here just a warning from us, to, to us as we think about church, just the importance of what we do here, doing it the way God called us to, with the proper heart to worship him, to love him. We might not do it perfect, but it should be the genuine desire of our heart when we do church to do it God's way. And if Jesus, he's here, right? But like if he walked in the way he walked into the temple, how would he feel about the way we love each other, the way we come to worship him, our intentions for being here, our purpose for being here? I think there's a lot of those things you learn from this passage. But the main thing that Matthew wants to communicate for us is the same thing Matthew's been focused on throughout. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is King. He's our Lord and Savior. The one that the temple pointed towards. It is through Him and Him alone that we can have fellowship 
with God. It's only by our salvation that we have through his death and resurrection that we can truly be reconciled to God. It's not through church. Church is a great thing. We could be tempted to substitute the temple for the church in our lives, right? Like church is just the institution that where we find our friends, where we find our place of being. We get to hang out, go to fun houses, do fun things. That's all great stuff, right? But that's not the point of church. The point of church is to worship God and to fellowship with the body of Christ and to serve him. And we can only do that through Jesus Christ. If Matthew wanted us to walk away with one thing, he'd love for us to walk away with all those other lessons and all those other points. But the main thing Matthew wants us to see in this passage is that the reason Jesus could come into the temple, could cleanse it, could accept worship from the people, is because he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And this was written for us so that we could, through recognizing that, put our faith in him and have true fellowship with God. All right? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much that you have given us your word to make it so clear to us who you are, that there's no question of who you claim to be. There's no question of what you demand from us. The only question is, how are we going to respond? Are we going to submit in obedience and faith to you as Lord, turning from our sinfulness to follow you, or are we going to reject the only path to salvation and reconciliation with the Father? And Lord, we just pray that the Holy Spirit would be in our hearts and in our lives to generate faith and obedience to you, to grow our love for you, and um, to grow us in our desire to serve and follow you, Lord. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.